0: Hello, I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Editor-in-Chief of Annals of Internal Medicine, and I'm delighted to be here to give you a quick update of what's new in Annals since our last Annals latest podcast. Let's begin with the new pandemic-related articles, and then we'll move to other topics. First is a retrospective cohort study among frontline personnel in Denmark that found the receipt of the AZD122 COVID-19 vaccine was associated with a small excess risk for deep venous thrombosis. Although the corresponding risks for the more rare and severe thrombotic outcomes, such as cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, were not statistically significantly increased, statistical precision was low and clinically relevant risks could not be excluded with certainty. However, there was no statistically significant association of BNT162b2 vaccination with thrombotic or thrombocytopenic events. Reports of waning vaccine-induced immunity against COVID-19 have surfaced, and the long-term protection conferred by previous infection with SARS-CoV-2 also remains unclear. Researchers from Israel reported a study that compared the long-term protection of immunity following infection, sometimes referred to as natural immunity, to vaccine-induced immunity. The study population included 673,676 individuals aged 16 or older who had received COVID-19 vaccination by February 28, 2021, 62,833 unvaccinated persons who had experienced a documented SARS-CoV-2 infection by February 28, 2021, and 42,099 persons who had both a documented SARS-CoV-2 infection by February 28, 2021 and had received a single dose of the vaccine by May 25, 2021. The researchers collected data on four SARS-CoV-2-related outcomes, infection, symptomatic disease, hospitalization, and death. Outcomes were evaluated between June 1 to August 14, 2021, corresponding to the time in which the Delta variant became dominant in Israel. SARS-CoV-2-naive vaccinees had a 13.06-fold increased risk for breakthrough infection with the Delta variant compared to unvaccinated previously infected individuals when the first event, infection or vaccination, occurred during January and February of 2021. The increased risk was significant for symptomatic disease as well. However, when looking at infections that occurred any time between March 2020 and February 2021, evidence of waning natural immunity was demonstrated. SARS-CoV-2-naive vaccinees had a 5.96-fold increased risk for breakthrough infection and a 7.13-fold increased risk for symptomatic disease. These findings suggest that previous infection may confer longer-lasting and stronger protection against infection and symptomatic disease caused by the Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2 compared to the immunity following the two doses of BNT162b2 vaccine. However, caveats are warranted. Screening for infection was not performed according to a study protocol, and these data may underestimate asymptomatic infection. Although the researchers controlled for age, sex, and socioeconomic status, the results might be affected by differences between the groups in terms of health behaviors such as social distancing and mask wearing. The last pandemic-related article to mention is a brief Annals for Hospitalist commentary that argues that although vaccination has been generally regarded as an outpatient issue, There are ways that hospitalists and hospital leaders can contribute to the critically important COVID-19 vaccination effort. The commentary emphasizes that every contact with the health system should be seen as an opportunity to facilitate vaccination. One of these opportunities is hospitalization. Treatment for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia grade 3, or CIN3, can remove or damage the cervix, possibly affecting pregnancy outcomes. Studies have linked history of treatment for CIN3 with higher risk of preterm delivery and other adverse outcomes. However, prior studies have compared individuals with histories of CIN3 treatment to patients in the same hospital or the general population without accounting for familial factors that might also affect pregnancy outcomes. Researchers from China and Sweden analyzed data from five national Swedish registries with complete population data on pregnancies, cancer diagnoses, and demographic information to investigate pregnancy outcomes in women diagnosed with CIN-3. The researchers identified 78,450 births after a maternal CIN-3 diagnosis and matched them to 784,500 births in women without a CIN-3 diagnosis. The two cohorts were closely or exactly matched for factors including calendar period of delivery, age of delivery, Swedish healthcare region years of education, country of birth, preeclampsia diagnosis, marital status, parity, pre-pregnancy body mass index, and smoking during pregnancy. The authors also matched full sisters for scenarios in which one gave birth with a history of CIN-3 treatment and the other gave birth without such a history. The authors found that women with a prior CIN-3 diagnosis had higher risks of preterm birth and related adverse pregnancy outcomes than their CIN-3 free sisters or population matched controls. According to the authors, association of CIN3 with many adverse outcomes seems to decrease over the 46-year period for which they had data that they analyzed, suggesting that more conservative contemporary treatment methods may minimize subsequent adverse birth outcomes. The authors note that the results suggest that more caution should be taken for screen-and-treat approaches to CIN3 as overtreatment of the cervix may lead to more adverse pregnancy outcomes. An accompanying editorial suggests that human papillomavirus vaccination could lead to lower CIN3 and associated adverse pregnancy outcomes in the future. For example, Australia has seen a 3.2% population-wide decrease in preterm births and a 9.8% decrease in small for gestational age infants after widespread HPV vaccination in that country. And the next article is also about cervical cancer. It's a new Annals Beyond the Guidelines Grand Rounds. Experts debate the most appropriate test and interval for a young patient who has not yet undergone cervical cancer screening but has received HPV vaccination. Beyond the Guidelines features are based on the Department of Medicine Grand Rounds at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and include print, video, and educational components. In recent years, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and the American Cancer Society have released differing guidelines for screening for cervical cancer. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommends that screening start at age 21, continue through age 29 with cytological screening every three years, then move to any of the following scenarios through age 65, cytology every three years, high-risk HPV testing every five years, or cytology with high-risk HPV co-testing every five years. The American Cancer Society recommends that screening start at age 25 and then continue every five years until age 65, with high-risk HPV testing alone being the preferred screening method at any age. Grand Rounds discussants, Doctors Amy Weinstein and Uma Farid, debate the case of a 22-year-old woman who has not yet undergone cervical cancer screening, but who has received HPV vaccination. In their assessment, both Drs. Weinstein and Farid agree that the patient's vaccination status should not impact screening choices or intervals. Because of the patient's age and medical history, Dr. Weinstein recommends that she begin high-risk HPV screening at age 25 to avoid unnecessary testing. Dr. Farid recommends that the patient should undergo screening now because she is overdue for screening under the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines. Both clinicians also agree that as the rate of HPV vaccination increases, cervical cancer will be less common and guidelines will need to evolve to include later start ages, longer intervals, and less testing for patients who have been vaccinated. Moving from cervical cancer to anticoagulation for patients with diabetes and atrial fibrillation. A retrospective cohort study of patients with atrial fibrillation and diabetes found that the use of non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants was associated with lower risk of diabetes complications and mortality than warfarin. These findings suggest that non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants may be a better therapeutic choice for this patient population. There are many patients who have both diabetes and atrial fibrillation and require anticoagulation to reduce their risk of stroke. Which anticoagulant is associated with better outcomes in this patient population has not been clear? Researchers studied data from Taiwan's National Health Insurance Research Database to compare the hazards of diabetes complications and mortality between patients with atrial fibrillation and diabetes without end-stage renal disease receiving non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants and those receiving warfarin. Of the 19,909 non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulant users and 10,300 warfarin users studied... Those taking non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants had significantly lower hazards of developing macrovascular complications, microvascular complications, glycemic emergencies, and all-cause mortality. Analyses with propensity score matching showed similar results, and several sensitivity analyses further supported the robustness of the findings. While the study cannot determine the exact mechanisms of the better outcomes in non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulant users, the authors suggest possible contributing factors could include the beneficial effects of vitamin K on insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance and the difference in anticoagulation mechanism between non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulants and warfarin. A group known as the National Clinical Care Commission, comprised 23 members with expertise in diabetes, epidemiology, public health, clinical care, patient, advocacy, health policy, and regulatory matters, has made recommendations for improving federal programs that impact diabetes prevention and care. The National Clinical Care Commission identified several opportunities to improve diabetes prevention and care through greater coordination of health-related and non-health-related federal agencies and recommends creating an Office of National Diabetes Policy. The Commission believes that all Americans at risk for and with diabetes must have access to high-quality and affordable health care, and federal policies and programs must promote health equity. In addition, focusing diabetes prevention efforts among those at high risk has the potential to greatly reduce the incidence of type 2 diabetes and its complications. Safe and effective methods to delay or prevent type 2 diabetes include intensive lifestyle change programs such as the National Diabetes Prevention Program and the use of metformin. However, uptake among at-risk populations is low and must be improved. These are among the 39 specific recommendations outlined in the paper and summarized in a table grouped by these topic areas, federal programs and policies, population-level programs to prevent diabetes, facilitate treatments and promote health equity, type 2 diabetes prevention, insurance coverage, diabetes care delivery, and diabetes research. The Commission strongly encourages Congress and the Health and Human Services Secretary to swiftly implement the Commission's recommendations. Next is a commentary on the patient satisfaction surveys that medical centers rely on to evaluate the patient experience. Familiar assessments include the Press-Ganey Survey and the Hospital Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems Survey. Physician and hospital reimbursements are linked to these results. The focus of these surveys is the patient's perceptions of their overall clinical experience, not quality of outcomes. Factors outside of the physician's control, such as ease of parking, wait times, discharge delays, and ancillary staff contribute to the scores. The commentary discusses that providers' race and gender can also affect the results, with non-whites and women ranking lower than whites and men. The author believes that, paradoxically, at a time when academic medical institutions are pushing policies to increase physician diversity and promote racial and gender equity in pay and rank, these surveys endorse an evaluation system that is biased. Also new are a non-being-a-doctor essay, the latest episode of Annals Consult Guys, the topic is unprovoked venous thromboembolism, and the most recent episode, the Annals on Call podcast, featuring a discussion about bariatric surgery and fatty liver disease. That brings us to the end of the February 15, 2022 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will go to annals.org for a closer look at some of the new material I've highlighted here. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Lyman for their technical support.